0: The scripture reading is from John 11:17 through 37. If you have a community bible, it's page 583. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb 4 days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 2 miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Some of you. Um, may remember. I personally I can't forget. It was about three years ago. I was sitting in a chapel at St. Luke's Hospital. It was around three a.m. and I couldn't sleep. Um, I probably drank more coffee than I care to admit. Wouldn't be the first time. Won't be the last. And my heart was so restless. That there was no way I was going to be able to sit comfortably in a rocking chair in the hospital. And so I decided to go for a walk and meander down the sterile hallways of the hospital. Eventually I made my way to the uh, hospital chapel. And I seated myself alone. There was no one else up at 3 a.m. apparently. And the sting of incense burned my nostrils. And I looked around the walls of the hospital and I saw these pictures, these paintings of Jesus with scripture references stenciled below. Um, scripture references about faith and healing. Passages that pointed to if you had faith, Jesus would heal. You see, after two weeks of being in, in and out of the hospital, trying everything we could within modern medicine and through prayers after prayers to try to stop my son from being prematurely born, the battle was lost. And as I sat there looking at my son who didn't survive his birth, Allie and I both wondered if we were going to survive. I probably never cried as hard. I probably never felt more lost than in that moment. And sitting in the chapel about 12 hours later, the day before Christmas Eve, when the promised child, the Son of God, we were to remember was to be born. I remembered my son. And remembering, still holding the images of not holding my lifeless little son. And I still can't get those images out of my mind. I remember trying to sing the doxology and I got to the second line. You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's reverberating off the empty walls of the chapel. Praise him, all creatures here below. And I just, I broke um, gasping for air and asking the question, where were you, Jesus? Did it have to be this way? I mean, wasn't there some other way this could have worked out? And some of you have been there, maybe not exactly in that particular position, but like that. Some of you may even be there this morning, and unfortunately, every one of us will one day be in that same position. We wait for God to show up, to send someone to do something, but then he doesn't. And we stare into the face of death, and we can't help but feel the absence of the author of life. And so we ask, God, where were you? Do you even see what's going on? Do you even care about what's going on? But some questions in life are so big, they actually only have one answer. And while there's someone who has the answer, I don't have it. I'm not him. You see, this fall we've been walking through, we've been kind of stalking Jesus listening in as he listens to others in the gospel, according to John, so that we can share Jesus the way Jesus did. We've seen already that he listens to the questions of a skeptic. He's peered through the silence of the satisfied. He's listened to the voiceless, the social outcast. And he's even dug deep underneath the surface of the heart of the indifferent. And so this morning we find a paradoxical picture of Jesus, one who is broken but who isn't beaten, one who's resilient and yet weeps as he listens to the groans of the grieving. Think about it. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not this morning and you're here checking out Jesus, everyone feels like there's something wrong in the world. We see it in every tear that's shed, every heart that's broken, every complaint that is whispered or shouted. And Christianity's response is found in John 11. It's here we find that question, a question we'll all ask at some point in our life, or maybe you're even asking this morning, a question with only one answer. And since I'm not the one who can give you that answer, I want to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts so that God will one day give us that answer. Let's pray. Our Father, We come to your word as you speak through various authors throughout time authoritatively into our life. May we submit ourselves to your word. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, even now, our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. As uh, Sherry already mentioned, if you're using one of the community Bibles, you'll find that on page number 583. John, he's the fourth eyewitness account we have listed in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to be looking back in history with him in John chapter 11. It's here we find Martha and Mary, two sisters who probably aren't any more different. (laughs) Um, And yet they had the exact same complaint when they come to Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Do you hear kind of the latent question? It's, it's hard to miss. In the face of death, these two sisters both ask the question where were you, Jesus? Well, let's find out. If you look back in John chapter 11, verse 1, John writes Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So, okay, already we find Jesus and he hears about Lazarus's sickness. And we start to think that maybe Jesus is just running a little late because the king's highway is kind of backed up this time of year. It's a bear to get through. Um, because he hears this news, so now's the time to book it. But instead, what do we find? Starting in verse four, but when Jesus heard it, he said, "This illness doesn't lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it." Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> Okay, um, it, just, it, it seems to kind of smack in the face, these two verses right next to each other. Jesus intentionally waits. In fact, if you look down to verse 14 and 15, Jesus has to be very direct with the disciples, and he says, this illness I'm talking about, actually, Lazarus is dead, okay? I've waited, and now he's dead. And I want you to think about that. Jesus waits so that Lazarus dies, Jesus waits until Lazarus dies, which is why in the story, Jesus never rebukes Mary or Martha for their complaint. Ever. They're right. He could have saved Lazarus if he would have come earlier, if he would have chosen to. So back to our question, where was Jesus when all this went down? He was a hundred miles away, waiting for Lazarus to die. Silent, silent, while Mary and Martha watch their brother breathe his last and now are grieving over Lazarus. And Jesus, their hope-filled Messiah, is waiting. He's waiting. There are moments we feel like this, don't we? In each one of our lives. Where were you, God, when we needed you? And you know, this story doesn't give us a picture of a God who rushes recklessly to our rescue, but one of who delays. He waits and even permits suffering and death and grieving. He doesn't show up in the delivery room. He doesn't always show up when we think it would be the most convenient, the easiest, the most comfortable. So what does this mean about God? It's a question actually the people of God have wrestled through throughout the Christian history, and it's not an easy answer. So here are three possible responses. First, we can see God as actually a lesser God than we once thought. Maybe he really doesn't know everything that's going on. Maybe he's really not powerful enough to save me or to protect me or to keep me from these evil things in my life, from death of loved ones. But the writers of Scripture, they don't give any time to that particular worldview throughout the pages of God's Word. Anytime something terrible happens in Scripture, there's only one of two options. Either God was actually the primary agent of it, or, or He could have stopped it, and He didn't. He could have stopped it, and He didn't. Look, it's right here in verse 37 in your text. They say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man that he healed earlier who was born blind also have kept this man from dying? Of course he could. That's, the question is assuming a yes answer. Now, if, it's, if God's not a lesser God, the other option is, well, maybe there isn't a God at all. If we want to use the phrase, bad things happen to good people, Why? Because not only is there not a good God who exists, but God doesn't exist, period. That's one option to take away from this story. And I understand how you could get there, but I want you to stay with me for a bit. There is a third option. And it's to see God as one who could have stopped the suffering, who could have stopped the pain, who could have stopped death, but he didn't. Whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever's going on in your family God could stop it like that. And I don't say that to shock you. I say that as a pastor and a person who has had to wrestle through the feeling of the absence of God in the face of death. This isn't something I say glibly, but we all have moments in life like Mary and Martha where we say, Jesus, why didn't you do something? Where were you? Well, some questions, they only have one answer. And I'm not the one who can give it. So instead, let's listen into Jesus' response to Mary and Martha. We see actually in verse 20 that Martha is the first to hear that Jesus was back in town. And so she sneaks away to bring Jesus a question. It's a statement, but it's a question. Even amidst her pain, she comes believing. You, you, You heard this in the text that was read. She comes believing that Jesus could do anything. And he's got this unique connection with God the Father that she doesn't know how to parse out just yet. And then Jesus gives her a hug and says, it's all going to be okay. No, that isn't what Jesus does. Not with Martha. Instead, Jesus, he does something that shocks our sensibilities. He proceeds to make Lazarus's death all about himself. Look in verse 23. Responding to to Martha, your brother will rise again. And I can almost feel the sting in Martha where she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but what about the grief of today? And Jesus says something astounding. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Even amidst loss, Jesus calls Martha to faith. Even amidst the pain of death, he asks her to go beyond this abstract belief of a resurrection that would come on the last day that almost every Orthodox Jew in the first century held to. And now he says, hold this belief in me alone as the resurrection, as the life. He is the resurrection. He alone has the power over death. Those who believe in him will not die. He is the life in that all ordinary life it falls apart without him. It seems meaningless, purposeless, at the very least, uninteresting. But life built around and on Jesus goes on without end. In him, there will be a day where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sadness. And you can almost imagine Jesus looking into Martha's bloodshot eyes, worn from the tears of grief, and he asked the question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And so in the wake of her brother's death, what does Martha do? She trusts wholly in Jesus. As the promised son of God, she confesses it right there in response to his question. In the midst of her brother's death, she sees the life in Christ hid within him and she holds fast. But even still, she's not ready for what Jesus is about to do. So Martha, she, she runs back to the house and she re-enters the room where Mary is there with others, and they're weeping. And it says that Mary approach, or Martha pra- approaches Mary privately. She whispers to Mary, "The teacher's here, and he wants to see you." Now, Mary, if you look across the gospel, she's never been as subdued or subtle as Martha. Um, And at the sound of Jesus' name, she runs out of the room. And you can imagine her panting as she's running with these intermixed feelings of anger, joy, and brokenness, kind of like a mother who finally receives back her child who had run away from home. Angry that the child had run away and left their family behind, but overjoyed that they're home and they just want to hold the child and celebrate over that child. And what Mary does is she runs and she grabs Jesus' feet and she begins crying and says the same thing Martha does. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And while she's bawling at Jesus' feet, all the rest of the Jews, her family, her friends, maybe even some professional mourners, which was common in the first century, gather around them and they're weeping almost uncontrollably and something happens with Jesus. In verse 33, being surrounded by people weeping over Lazarus, it says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You know, this translation, deeply moved, ugh, that sounds so passe. Um, and and the, the shameful thing about it is every commentary will highlight how that particular translation, for some reason, In almost any interpretation, in any translation, it never really captures the depth and the pain and the anger that's going on in Jesus at this moment. In verse 35, we find the notoriously shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept. In verse 38, when Jesus gets to the tomb, he once again is deeply moved, he's outraged, he's broken. And what's going on? (laughs) Because believe it or not, Jesus is the one who has the biggest response to death in this whole passage. He's the one who has the most emotional response than anyone else that we have recorded in this story. But he had every opportunity to stop this. It's clear in the passage that he even has a plan. And yet no one is angrier at death and sin that flows from unbelief here than Jesus. And so he weeps with Mary and As an aside, as we wrestle sometimes with the authority of this text, I think this is actually one of the greatest reasons why I think this story isn't made up. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, is all-powerful, is all-knowing, and knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he still weeps, it doesn't make any sense, (laughs) quite frankly. And every historian will say, and later inventor of unhistorical tales would probably not have ascribed this attribute to Jesus. It doesn't make sense if you're making up a story to do this. But if it's real, if this is true, and we find one of the greatest pictures of who God is. It's too bizarre to be fabricated, honestly. And so let's pause at this bizarre moment and see what this means for us. As followers of Jesus... How does he inform the Christian's response to grief and to the grief of those that we see around us? Well, first, we're freed to weep deeply with others about death. Look in the text and you try to find Jesus rebuking Mary and Martha for bringing their questions, for bringing their complaints. If you go looking in the text and try to find a stoic Jesus, you won't find him. He's not there. But instead, he weeps with them at the brokenness of a world where sin and death still exist. And we tend, when we grieve, we tend to lean towards one of two extremes, depending on our personality or even our culture. Both of those components come in together. For one, when we face death, we can face it with a blind optimism, where we're afraid of actually opening up ourselves to grief. It's the old fake it till you make it approach. You always have a smile. You're always put together. Tears never shed from your eye with a hope that finally no one will see the crack in your own soul. Hiding from grief and the pain of death, and it just won't last. It never works. And you feel isolated, alone, and even more miserable. The other extreme is that we face death with this dark pessimism that in the face of the death of one of our loved ones, we can actually respond to the point that we can't catch our breath in this life. We let death have the final word in death. But what we see from Jesus and actually the people of God throughout history is a freeing third way. We're called to come with the boldness of realistic lament. Now, lament is raw prayer. It's not sugar-coated. It's not nice and neat It's prayer to God acknowledging that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know God is so good that he is all-powerful, and yet you see pain and you see death in the world. It's a song of weeping, of frustration. It's exactly like the psalm that was read for us by Frank, Psalm 88, one of the darkest psalms in the Psalter. You know God could have done otherwise. But you still bring your questions and you ask, why? Where were you? It's running to him with our grief rather than letting death have the final word. We come with our frustrations like Mary and we fall at his feet and we ask for him to show up and we do it with our coworkers. We do it with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, with Christians and non-Christians. And we ask the question, where were you God in this? And we hear Paul's call to us as our vocation as Christians later on in Romans 12 where he says we are called to weep with those who weep. Where does he get this from? It's because he knows Jesus. And he knows who we are called to follow after. But that's not all that Jesus does, right? He also points to himself. He makes Lazarus's death about him. And in a very real sense every death is pointing us to Jesus. As Christians, this means that that we point resolutely to Jesus in death. So yes, we weep with those around death and in death, but we also point resolutely to Jesus in death. Now this doesn't mean what we sometimes think it means with these glib sentimentalities where we pat each other on the back to make ourselves feel better and say, oh, he's in a better place. Or the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That doesn't bring comfort. And actually, we don't see Jesus do either of those things in this scenario, do we? Instead, and, and just before I move on, those two statements aren't bad statements, but there is timing. <laughs> there are moments to say those. those are, there are moments to wrestle in those. But in the face of death, Jesus weeps. He gets angry, and he points to how Jesus or Lazarus' death is about someone bigger than Lazarus. And one of those times that we can do that most resolutely is in our own death, whenever that comes. I'm not sure if you've heard about the heartbreaking story. It's been in the news. Brittany Maynard, um, she was 29 years old. She was married and wanted to start a family, but instead she's di- she was diagnosed with a fatal brain cancer and was given six months to live. After weighing all the options of treatment, her and her family chose to move to Oregon, which is one of the few states where you can choose to actually purchase a prescription drug that will end your life when you're ready to end it. When the pain was too real, the suffering too gruesome, too, too dark to bear, she can take the pill and end it when she's ready. And the reason I bring up her story is because around the same time I heard about Brittany, I heard about Kara. And Kara knows someone that Brittany doesn't. Kara knows Jesus. And she too is battling with terminal cancer, but she's chosen to surrender her timeline to God. Listen to what she writes in an open letter in her blog to Brittany. As I sat on the bed of my young daughter praying for you, I wondered over the impossibility of understanding that one day the story of my young daughter will be made beautiful in her living because she witnessed my dying. That last kiss, that last warm touch, that last breath matters. But it was never intended for us to decide when that last breath is breathed. Knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know him in your dying because in his dying he protected my living, my living beyond this place, Brittany, When we trust Jesus to be the carrier, protector, redeemer of our hearts, death is no longer dying. My heart longs for you to know this truth, this love, this forever living. Kara knew something about God. She knew God delays. But she also knew that she'll never die alone with no eyes on her. In John chapter 11, Jesus knows exactly what's going on with Lazarus. He knows exactly that he's going to die, and it's actually going to be for the glory of the Son of God. And this can be really jarring for us in a world where many times we're preached a prosperity gospel. If you just follow Jesus, he makes everything right. Not always. Eventually, yes. But there will be dark days ahead for each of those who follow Jesus and pick up their cross. And I think a really helpful voice actually comes from the 16th century. Martin Luther, in a sermon on death, he writes, In the hour of his death, no Christian should doubt that he is not alone. He can be certain that a great many eyes are upon him. First, the eyes of God and of Christ himself, for the Christian believes his words and clings to his sacraments. Then also the eyes of the dear angels, of the saints, and of all the Christians. And then I would go on to add your friends, your coworkers, your family, and your neighbors who don't know Jesus. They're watching. We're called to point resolutely to Jesus in our death. And like Kara, it's in your death that you're probably going to be given one of the greatest opportunities to share Jesus the way Jesus did. I actually remember after Judah, my son, passed, Allie and I prayed regularly, God, why? Just give us a glimpse. Give us an example of what you're doing. We know you're more powerful than this. We don't understand it, but give us a glimpse. And one of the most beautiful pictures actually was in our son's death, the picture of the church. When we felt so alone, the church brought us meals, cleaned our loft, cared for us, prayed with us. And all of our neighbors who lived in our sixplex at the time, none of them followers of Jesus, came and said, We've never seen the church do that. Ever. Who is this Jesus? What's going on? There's something different. And even there, God was glorifying his son in the midst of death doesn't make it easier. And when the questions come as to where is your God now, to which Jesus himself actually was asked when he was hanging on the cross, we come to some of the questions, some of the biggest questions that only have one answer. And I'm not the one who can give that answer. And honestly, this is where many of us will go wrong when talking with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, maybe even talking with our own hearts, because we want reasons. Reasons for our own peace of mind. Reasons to share with others. We want Jesus to explain himself. In our passage in chapter 11, verse 4, we hear a broader reason that Jesus is going to glorify himself through this. But is that satisfying for Mary and Martha? Instantly, the question that follows, well, couldn't you have done it a different way? Isn't, you, you are the all-knowing one. Isn't there another path? And for some of you this morning, this, this reason you want for God to bring and to reveal why he did this, but you're waiting for God to explain himself. This is maybe the reason you've waited to even follow Jesus. Jesus because you're waiting for him to give you a reason for something that happened painful in your life in the past or something that happened terrible to someone you loved in the past. But there are a couple issues with this. For starters, it makes the assumption that we'll actually understand the reason when God gives it. And then secondly, the, the assumption that for some reason we think we'll be satisfied with that reason. Every answer as we see here, as I've seen in my own life, will be followed up with another question. Well, couldn't there have been another way? I remember in high school, a friend of mine, he lost his dad in a freak motorcycle accident. And we sat there in his living room, a bunch of us high school dudes praying and weeping and asking, where were you, Jesus? He had no other family. His mom had abandoned him. His grandparents were dead and gone. It was just him and his dad, no other family. And now he's alone, Where were you, Jesus? What's going on? And it's in moments like these we have to realize eventually that asking the question why will never bring satisfaction. But rather, we will find fulfillment if we ask the question can. Not why, but can. Can Jesus reach down into death and pull out life? Can Jesus, in the words of Sam... And the Lord of the Rings, make everything sad come untrue. At the tomb, look at Jesus. He's broken, but he's not beaten. He never designed the world for death, for disease, for grieving, for sadness. And yet here he is, the one who by mere utterance can set all things right. And yet no one sees him. And no one expects what he's about to do next. And this is where we find our answer to the question that we all long for. It's the one answer to all weeping, to all sadness, to all brokenness, to the heart-wrenching grief, this death, these tears. And it comes in verse 44 with Jesus' loud shout. Lazarus, come out! When we look at Jesus and we say, where were you? He looks at us and says what he said to Martha. I am the life. I am the resurrection. I'm the one who will look over your life, the death that you dealt others, the death that has been dealt you. And one day I will say, Gabe, come out. Judah, come out. David, come out. Charles, come out. And I'm the only one who has the power of life to do that. No other one can do this. No death can linger on that which I proclaim life. And that's Jesus' answer. It's the only answer that is true to this question, where were you, is resurrection by his power. No matter what other answer we're given, the only answer we want is they will one day be alive again. Come out, unbind him, unbind her. Let them go. It's the only answer that will do. So what's your answer? Now, there may be some of us here who look and say, Gabe, I get this. I get that Jesus did this for Lazarus. That's nice. But he's never done that for me. And what we can't miss from the wider story is that when Jesus came for Lazarus, he wasn't just coming for Lazarus. If you look back actually to John chapter 11, verse seven and eight, you find a dialogue between the disciples and Jesus. Jesus is set to travel to Bethany to raise Lazarus and his disciples say, don't go, don't do this. And, and why? Why do they push back? Because Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem. And just earlier in our story, we see that in chapter 11, verse 8, they say the Jews were just seeking to stone Jesus. There's a lot of animosity. And the disciples knew that if Jesus went back to raise Lazarus from the dead, he was going to die. But Jesus goes anyway. Why? Why do you think that is? It's... It's because when Jesus returns to Bethany, he has us in mind, and he's heading to Gethsemane. Bethany is a travel-through spot to Gethsemane. He loves Lazarus. Chapter 11, verse 5 clearly says that. But also in chapter 3, verse 16 of John, we see that God loves us, and God incarnate Christ loves us enough to die that if we believe on him, none should perish. The author of life, Jesus himself, he actually initiates the painful trajectory to his own death for our sins to secure an eternal resurrection for those who place their faith in him and him alone. As he says later in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Such that now we as Christians, when we're faced with a painful reality of death, and we ask, where were you, Jesus? We can look to a cross where our Savior went and not only wept over our pain, but entered the depths of our pain to not even where we could go. And three days later, conquers death with his own resurrection. What is our response to death? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And Jesus' answer As we have died together, we will rise together and we will live together. It is our creed, our hope, and it's here in his answer we find courage to face death. He alone has the power to cry out with a loud voice of victory. He alone has the word to reverse the last word of death, which is really the second to last word for all who are found in Jesus as he shouts, come out once and for always. It's with this resurrection life courage we can now weep with others about death because having even the taste of resurrection life now that will go into eternity, we see all the more the ugliness of death. Having now this resurrection life courage here, we can actually die with courage. Pointing to Jesus resolutely, Because he has the final word, not death. For he said it to one before, to Lazarus. And there's going to come a day where he will say, Come out forever to all who are his. And so we can sing, even in the shadow of death, in a hospital chapel, with the echo of his voice ringing loud and clear Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, only you can give this answer through the finished work of Jesus from the proclamation of our risen Lord to come out. We look forward to that day. We hold fast to that day where that proclamation will be the final word for those who are his. God, we come to death and we want all of these reasons why the pain is now and why the grief is now. We may not be able to understand it. There's a good chance that the grief is so intense we probably won't be satisfied with it. But may we be satisfied with Christ. May we hold fast that when Jesus says, to you believe this, may we believe and hold that he is the resurrection and the life, the only true answer to the question of death. We pray all this as a people who are feeble, who many times wrestle with belief, help us in our unbelief. In his name, Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.